Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Last week we talked about one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible. I already gave you a hint about that. I feel like you guys really want to hear me today. I've got the double mic thing going on. Uh, it's the prodigal son. Anybody remember what prodigal means? Told you last week. One person remembers. It means waste. So the prodigal son is really the wasteful son, the one that took things for granted, the one that just blew through things, the one that didn't care uh, enough to be a good steward, just waste, didn't love, didn't care, wasted things. Uh, And that's what the prodigal son's life almost was, a complete waste. But it was redeemed. He repented and he came home to his father. But he's not the only son in this story. I told you there's another one. It's often blown by, he's often disregarded, or we look at it and we see it tagged on at the end, the older brother, and we think, well, be careful that you love people that come home, and there's a lesson in there. No, there's a lot more than that uh, in there for us to learn from the older brother. He's the self-righteous older brother uh, that not many people know that much about. But I'm going to introduce another son. Some of you going, ooh, there's only two in that story. Let's not go heretical, Pastor. No, there's three. There are three sons in the story of the prodigal son. There is the younger brother, the older brother, and where's he going? There is the son telling the story. Who's that? There's Jesus. He's the other son. And actually, there are things in this story about him. The father in this story is representative of our father in heaven. But let's go back, and I'm going to tell you where Jesus fits in here in a moment, uh, because everything we do is about Jesus. Everything ends, begins, and ends um, with the name and the person of Jesus. But let's start with this older brother. As I mentioned, it's another story of a waste uh, in this story of the prodigal son. Uh, But I have named this message, I have called this message toxic waste for a reason. That sounds mean, but I've called it that because this is waste on steroids. This is somebody that, even though he's in the father's house, even though he does a lot of good things, in fact, when he says later on in this parable that he's been a good boy and he's always listening, he's always been obedient, the father doesn't say, well, remember that time he did this? Well, there are the five things you did over here. Well, you didn't tell the... His, he doesn't say anything because perhaps he can't. Maybe he really has been a quote-unquote, good son. Maybe he really has kept the rules. We'll see that in a moment. Stand with me in honor of God's word, and we're going to read the last part of this. We're going to read Luke 15, 25 to 32. Now, the prodigal son has come home, and the father ran out to greet him, which was taboo in that society. He loved him, hugged him, didn't even let him get through his speech of repentance because he knew that he was truly repentant. And they're going to have a celebration, a big party. In fact, the party has already begun and you can hear all the noise and the older brother's out in the field and he's going, what is going on? And when he finds out, well, here's where I'll pick up. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants over and he asked him what these things meant, what's going on? And the servant said to him, well, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf. That's something that is saved. That's something that you're not supposed to mess with that's um, like the turkey for Thanksgiving. You don't go in there and start making turkey sandwiches before you've had the turkey. It's saved for a special occasion. He's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But this brother was angry and he refused to go into the party. His father came out to him then. There it is again. So his father came out to him and entreated him and basically begged him and he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. And he doesn't respond to that. Never? That's pretty lofty. 
Yeah, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, I'm sure he has a name, right? He's also his brother or this brother of mine. He won't even say that. Won't even say this brother of mine. He says this son of yours. Look at the disconnect that this older brother has with his brother. When the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. All of it. And it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this, your brother. He was dead. For all intents and purposes, we all thought he died out there. But he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Isn't that cause for celebration? And so, logically, everyone celebrates. Well, not everyone. You can be seated. Last week, I had you... Imagine together with me what the outcome would have been had everything gone perfectly for the rebellious and wasteful son. Remember when I said that? Some of you weren't here, but I said, what if he had gone off with the money and decided to invest it right away? So that when the famine hit, he still had money. Let's go one step better now. What if there was no famine? What if he just hit that one window at a time when there was no famine? In fact, if you invested heavily in the stock market and you cashed in and were wise and then you shifted over just the right time and you weren't poorly positioned around 2007 in this country, you'd be sitting pretty right now. You'd be sitting great. You know why? Because you could buy all kinds of houses that are foreclosed on and everything's changed. But if you didn't, then it's sort of an economic famine. What if he made all the right decisions? What if everything worked out for him? What if his friends stuck around but he never realized they only liked him for the money? Well, then he would have gotten to the end of his life and he would have had this false impression that everything's just hunky-dory, but then he would have stood before the Lord and the Lord would have said, depart from me. I never knew you. And he would enter an eternity of being eternally broken because he never had a point in his life when he was beautifully broken for just a temporary time in order to get him close to the Father. There is an article I read and, and you'll see why the title of the article caught my attention. It was in a Christian magazine and it was called Outrage Porn. Outrage Porn. And let me quote to you what I learned about this and see if you can't relate that this is in fact happening in Christianity. Outrage sells. When you say so, outrage sells. It's plain as day. If eyeballs on articles are the currency of new media, there are few things that attract those eyeballs more effectively than just plain outrage. In the wider cultural context of new media, there's always lots to work with, Right? I mean, I'll give you two words, Alec Baldwin, okay? There's lots to work with when people want to get upset at somebody else. Uh, homophobia, Steve Martin's racism, Patton Oswalt's insensitivity. Man, we can go, we can just go on and on and on. Some of it's real, some of it's not real at all, and people uh, fill in the blank, people play lies, but we, we love to get outraged. We just love to get upset. Holy indignation. There's always someone saying something dumb or unwise, and if you're sitting there going, I, I don't really think so, it's probably you. It's what you're struggling with. And, and new media's response is immediate, fiery indignation at other people. And we as Christians are also very easily outraged. It's just something I've noticed. We are. We just love to go charge ahead with something. 
you know, some article gets in the paper, somebody says something, especially about somebody else in ministry, and they'll get just one little thing, and we all rush to camp on it because we want somebody to burn at the stake. When's the last time we burned anybody at the stake? We always got to keep that stake lit up and on fire and a human body on it. Sometimes, though, we seem to forget that we are sinful people. I've noticed that. We ourselves are sinful people living in a sin-stained world and that sinners, even saved ones, behave like sinners. And we lose sight of that. Sometimes we appear to hold the people we admire or admired, past tense, to the impossible standard of perfection that we never apply to ourselves. Just them. We don't mind if our historical heroes are deeply flawed. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, actually, if you read about the life of C.S. Lewis, that guy has some quirky stuff going on. And yet, he's a fantastic theologian. I'm about to tell you something that's going to rock your world. You know his views on hell? Do you know who he most closely lines up with? Take a guess. His views on hell. I've read about everything I can get my hands on. C.S. Lewis just devoured it. And he's revered as a great theologian. Now, not completely, but if I had to line up what he believed about hell closest to anyone I could think of, it would be Rob Bell. That horrifies you, doesn't it? Because we've already taken Rob Bell out figuratively and, and burned him at the stake a hundred times. And I think Rob Bell's completely wrong on what he said on hell, but C.S. Lewis said the same thing over and over. But historically, we can forgive. But when it comes to our contemporary heroes, when they fail or when they even falter, just trip up a little bit, we respond with, you guessed it, outrage. For a few days, we light the torches and we lift the pitchforks in our empty protests. And then you know what we do a couple days later? We get bored and we move on. And why do we move on? Because we pretty much killed them and the reputation and everything else. There's not much left to play with. That's boring. Let's find somebody else to burn at the stake. Well, now I want you to imagine what would have happened had this returning and repentant son been greeted by his older brother instead of his father. We played imagination last week. You know, had the younger brother had everything go for him, well, it would have been tragic. You know that now, right? It would have been tragic because he would have never been reconciled to the father. And he didn't love his father when he left. But when he returned with the right perspective, he deeply loved his father. That would have never happened had he not been beautifully broken. And however, now we look at this. What if he'd have come down the road and that father would have taken, you know, for years he's waiting for his son, but what if he was off buying more cattle or something, just gone for a couple of hours and standing there on the front porch is the older brother instead. And what if the older brother sees him walking down and thinks to himself, my dad's not here. I know what he would do. I know I'll handle this. I'll handle this instead. I'll greet my father's other son. What if the self-righteous brother would have said, how dare you even think? I mean, whoa, 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 stop right there. How dare you even think about showing up here? Let me just ask you, what are you thinking? Do you think after what you've done, after what you've taken? Our father's not stupid. When you said you wanted the money now, you were saying you wanted him dead. You know how broken his heart is. You know what you've done to him? He thinks you're dead, but he still holds out hope. I'll tell you what, I'm going to do you a favor and save you some trouble. How about you turn right around and you go back to whatever pig slop or sewer you crawled out of and we'll forget this ever happened, okay? And stop thinking you're worthy to come back. Well, he already didn't think he's worthy to come back, right? He had a speech saying, I'm not worthy. But this brother could have put him over the edge, right? 
Because he's probably thinking, I'm, I'm scum. I'll just be a servant. I'll work in the lowest job there is. And this brother's out there to go, you're right. You are scum. In fact, I, I'm floored that you've attempted to come back. You had it right the first time. You're scum. Now live like scum. Leave. Or darn right, you're going to be a slave. You got that part right, but not here. You've already done enough damage here. Now listen, I've worked out a little something or I think I can get something going and there's a farm and a property of some family that we know and they're about an hour from here and you can be a slave there. But if we ever hear a peep, I'll make sure you never come around here if you ever hurt our father. Or like I said, turn around right there and go back to where, from where you came from. So you look at that and you go, well, that would have killed the story, wouldn't it? Truth is, a lot of repentant people who come to the end of themselves and come to a brokenness in life, try to return to God's house. And they are greeted by elder brothers rather than gracious, loving fathers. In churches all over, that's what they're greeted by. In fact, one of the largest demographics that I feel like we are called, really any church is called, but I know that we are called an impact church to reach, is not just the unchurched, but another thing that I call the de-churched. I mean, these are people in the Bible Belt that might have grown up in church and learned some things and maybe played by the rules, but then they got their life messed up somehow and they're de-churched, but somehow they have hope and God's Holy Spirit moves in their heart and they want to come back and then they come back and they're greeted by older brothers and that mentality. And I think around here, there may be more de-churched than there are unchurched that we're called to reach. So we have a problem. Got a real dilemma when they're more likely at a lot of churches to run into the older brother types than they are the gracious, loving father. Because they're not going to stay. They're not going to stay. And hopefully you see, especially in a time of year coming up in just a couple of weeks when prodigals will return. They're not quite repentant. In fact, our whole message is going to be beautifully broken and I've got, I've got one message to get them there. It's going to start on Good Friday, so I hope you invite a lot of people to that right here. But we're going to talk about how brokenness is not bad, how brokenness is not something to be feared. And hopefully, far from frightening people off, it's going to make them want to come because I think most of the people hearing it are probably, a lot of you are in some form of brokenness right now. Very few people live constantly on cloud nine. There's a lot of people that fake it in Christianity. Have you seen that? But they're really not living on cloud nine. What about the people that have millions of dollars and have used that health, wealth, and prosperity and they got everything? They're not living that way either, gang. They've got a lot of trinkets, but now they've seen that at the end of the rainbow, it's not really a pot of gold. They're just as empty. You can have a lot of stuff. You can even have a lot of friends around you. Didn't the prodigal teach us that? And still be empty. So, when truly repentant people are, are made to feel like they can't come home to Jesus, but self-righteous people are feeling like they're better than Jesus, what kind of church does that leave? When truly repentant, broken people feel like they can't come there, but self-righteous people think, I don't even really need Jesus because I'm so good anyway, what are you left with? I mean, as I search the scriptures in the New Testament, and as I look at how it was, I can only find one group, and it's not so much a building, but it's a group that was exactly like that, and that's the Pharisees. That's the religious community, right? I mean, the religious community, they thought they were better than Jesus. They pointed it out to Jesus all the time. We keep rules better than you do. They're stupid man-made rules, but he says, we, they, they all said, we're, we're, we're more righteous. 
And yet they were empty. And Jesus said, yeah, but you're, you, you do look polished on the outside, but inside you're full of dead stuff. Dead man's bones. And sinners can't even come here because you're always putting sinners down. So what have you got? And in a modern sense, 2,000 years later, what do we have? You have a dead church and a gathering all over this country of churches. If they're like that, well, it's just a social club. It's really not doing anything for the kingdom. And here's the problem. Here's where I struggle on this. Because we are all prodigals in one way or another. Every one of us. If you're born again right now, if you've been saved, and it's because you came home. It's because you realized you're a prodigal. And you came to the Father and he saved you through the Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're struggling, you're still a prodigal. But we're all prodigals at one time or another. Or if we're not a prodigal right at this moment, then we're the elder brother. Physical distance from God has little to do or little bearing on whether we are lost. The prodigal was in a, what do they call it? He was in a faraway place. He went to a faraway land. And that, that represents in the story just rebelling from God. That represents in your heart just getting as far away from God as you possibly can. And we know from Jonah in the Old Testament that you can't run from God. No, where, no matter where you go, even in a fish's belly, he's right there. But it represents being as far from the Father as we can possibly get. Or you can be sitting in the house of God and we're meeting in a school right now, but because believers are gathered, this is church. You can be right in church and be just as far from God, spiritually speaking, as the person who is on drugs, who has stiff-armed God, who is, says they're an atheist, who says... You can, physical distance has very little to do with it. Each of these is in the same danger, the same level of danger. Actually, I, I take that back. The elder brother's in far greater danger because he can't see it. He lived right there in the father's house, but he could not have been further away. Couldn't have been further away. Well, I'm going to give you three things in these parables. The sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son. The three characteristics they have of why they were lost. And I want you to pay attention because we're going to take the rest of our time really looking at these because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost but all lost people aren't the same the sheep was lost let's see if you can help me due to what what do you think just just throw it out there guys wandering but somebody said it he's stupid we're compared to sheep more than any other animal in the bible what does that say about us gang we're not as sharp as we think the sheep was lost because he's dumb. The sheep was lost because he was foolish. He's naive. He believed everything. And it represents somebody who just follows every little whim there is. Well, you know, all roads lead to heaven. You know, all religions are really God's way of communicating different people in different cultures. And it all ends up the same. That's dumb. That's dumb. Because if you really look at even false religions, they say things within themselves that says it's only our way and not that one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6, which means it's this way and not those. And if somebody comes along and says, well, they all agree. No, they all disagree. That's dumb. That's foolish to put your life in that. So the sheep was lost due to foolishness. The coin was lost due to carelessness. And we don't know if it was the person, the woman who lost the coin herself. Probably not. Probably somebody else misplaced it. Maybe she showed it to him. Maybe it was out. Maybe it got knocked over. I don't know. But there was some form of carelessness or, or somebody did something and they didn't really care how it affected someone. And that coin of the 10 coins is lost. And then the son was lost 
due to what? Rebellion. Yeah. The son is lost due to rebellion. He just doesn't, I don't want to get close to you. I don't care if you're my father. I just, man, life is short. I just want it to be about me. Only me. I only, I only care about me. I don't even know why I'm wired that way, but I am. I don't think it's sin. I just, I just don't love you. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want to party. He was a rebel. And I think if any of us thinks about it long enough, we'll see that most sin, watch this, most sin in our life falls into one of these categories. Jesus covered it all with these three. Otherwise, I believe he would have told the five stories of lost things or the seven stories. But we all fall into one of these categories. Who among us at one time or another hasn't made a boneheaded mistake? And if you're sitting there going, lifting your hand at that moment is boneheaded mistake. It's pretty dumb. Everybody's done something that you just look at it and you go, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I just, I mean, what do you think that was? Dumb. Just dumb. I don't know. I, naive. Sadly, it, it's quite possible that some sitting here right now have even experienced incredible pain and hurt in your life out at of at, at at nothing that you did. I don't want you to lift your hands on this one, but there's probably people sitting here right now that have experienced the greatest pain of their life, tremendous hurt, because somebody did something to you. It wasn't your fault at all. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were verbally assaulted. Maybe you were bullied. Maybe you were unfairly treated at a job. Maybe things were stolen from you. Maybe lies were told. Maybe slandered. Some of us are hurt and lost and wandering because of nothing we did ourselves. Doesn't mean you're not a sinner. We all are. But the greatest hurt in your life is because people didn't care about you. They were careless about your life and, and, and abused you. The sins of selfish parents or, or relatives or somebody leaving a mark comes to mind on an innocent child. And sometimes we're just plain rebellious, intentionally, knowingly rebellious. I and mean, you ask them, well, why are you doing this? I just want to. You realize that this defies your parents. I don't care. Say, well, there's not many kids like that. You know, one of the most hurtful things kids learn to say, I mean, and they learn it at like three. You know what it is? I really need you to pick up your toys, Johnny. I hate you. <laughs> Have you ever heard a little kid say that? It's funny, isn't it? Well, you just crack up. They're like two or three. I hate you. I hate you. You're looking at it going, you can barely say the words. You can barely even get it right. I hate you. I mean, they're just little rebellious kids. You don't even know why they're doing it. Hateful. No logic to it. Just, I don't want to do what you say. I want to do what I want. So watch this. Here's what I've observed. Most people have their pet sins. Right? Man, I could go through it in America and just say, oh yeah, it's, it's just very clear what two or three pet sins are. Or as they're referred to in the Old Testament, high places. You know, there was this one sin in the Old Testament that I look at it and I go, just dumb, dumb, dumb stuff. Couldn't have been clear. Many, many kings. And then when, the, and when Israel got divided into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, you got these kings. Most of them were wicked. And some of them were good. And some of them were very good. Very few were very good. But the ones that were good, they couldn't quite make it over the hurdle to very good. You know what it was they wouldn't give up? It was this thing called the high places. Just, just the high places. And it, there were literally places where they built Asherah poles and places of worship to false gods or they allowed them to stay there and they were set up all over the 12 tribes or the divided kingdom where there are two tribes and 10 tribes 
of Israel where pagan gods would be worshipped, false gods would be worshipped, and godly kings would come to the throne and say, we need to worship God alone. And all over the hills, there are these false shrines. And the very good kings that, that came into power would tear down those high places. But some of the kings were afraid to do that. Those were their pet sins, and that's why they couldn't become great. Well, we have pet sins. Come on, we have them all the time. There are sins that are really no worse in God's eyes than any other sin. And sure, they do damage, but we have pet sins. Should I go there? Let, let's go. Let's just try one. I mean, one comes to mind right away. I, I watch how we handle it, and I watch how we judge it. And I go, you know what? I see lists in the Bible that say, and behold, you know, idolaters, drunkards, homosexuals, none will enter the kingdom of God, those that practice such things. And I watch us, and we pull one word out of there. We pull one word. We pull homosexuals out of there. That's what I watch. Where are you going with this? You think, no, it's a sin like anything else, but why don't we pull drunkards out of there? Guys, I have literally witnessed at, at parties when I was, I've witnessed people drunk condemning homosexuals. You ever seen that? That's kind of a funny scene, isn't it? I mean, they're just wasted. They're drunk. I don't know about those homosexuals out there and all their, and they can't even stand up. What's in the same verse? Then what's going on? That must be a pet sin. That must be one that we can all put in a category. We found one. If there's one thing we're not doing, but we're doing all the rest, we're still better because we're not doing that one thing. That's just an example. Some of you got real uncomfortable there. I'm just telling you, I see it. But if you want to love someone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol, you got to love them, get them out of that. But if you want to love someone who's struggling with homosexuality, you got to love them, get out of that too. You can't say, well, that's different. That's just too, you can't treat them different. It's the same, it's a sin like anything else. So is adultery. So is lying. So is gossip. Careful, pastor. Some of those are mine, my pet sins. You can pick on everybody else's pet sin. But we had an agreement. No, we didn't. That was your agreement. We didn't have an agreement. There are pet sins that we have. And we see others involved in our own pet sin. We might be a little bit more tolerant. That's what I found. Yeah, I'm not going to condemn them because, you know, everybody has faults. Whenever I hear somebody act like that, I'm thinking, so you struggle with that, huh? That's your thing? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not you know, but let's just leave them alone. Or when we see someone involved in one of these categories that for whatever reason just doesn't seem all that bad to us, we don't mind but let it be the third category. Remember I said there, there's two, foolishness, rebellion, carelessness. And we might have two that we like, but there's, there's usually one that some people don't like. And let it be that one and the one that we've elevated to a place of super sin and we write them off. We just write them off. Oh yeah, they fall into the third category. I'm just trying to really make it almost formulatic. I, I mean... Yeah, I just invented a new word. Write that down. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put, make it so simple that we can see it. I'm trying to put it on a bottom shelf so we can actually look at this thing and everybody can reach and go, wow, I do that? Yeah, we all do that. Some people see a brother or sister in Christ messing up their life because, now see where you fit in here, because of a momentary lapse in judgment and their heart goes out to them. Haven't you ever done that? Listen, they're good people. They just, they made a mistake. I, I want to help them. And others see someone hurt by an unloving spouse and they want to come alongside them in their pain. You know, maybe you went through something or maybe, maybe you had a spouse that, that betrayed you and you see someone else. So you want to come alongside them. But maybe they see a rebellious person and all they can muster is, they should have known better. Oh, well, there, they should have known better. They're just a rebel. Without it, well, you, why did you have no problem in the... 
And others relate to the rebel. I've seen this because maybe they were one themselves at one point. Oh, man, I, yes, he does mess up a lot, but I have a heart for that, man. I, I'm class clown. I messed up so much. And somebody came alongside me and loved me. And if they didn't do that, you know who's like that? I think about Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. The guy was a rebel without a cause. Couldn't find a cause. Just a rebel about everything. And if people didn't rally around him, he wouldn't be such a man of God today. If there weren't people that could love a rebellious son. If this world was filled with people that write off just rebels, then Franklin Graham would still be a rebel. So maybe you could have seen it. And because, or, or they, somebody that makes a mistake because they were foolish, uh, they can give them a pass, but they wonder why people with abusive pasts, why can't you just get over it? Why can't you just get over it? Anyone? I mean, listen, I've made foolish mistakes. I'm going to try and help them. Hey, I was a rebel. I'm trying to help them. Hey, this person, all they do is keep talking about how they grew up and they were so abused. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody's abused. Just get over it. Why is that a black hole in your heart? Why, why is that a blind spot? Why can't you forgive that person? What's, what happened there? Still others, this is the last one. We got to go over all these. Really, they'll relate to the one that's lost because of another's carelessness, because of abuse, or the momentary rebel, but they can't figure out how someone can just be so dumb as to wander off and believe naive stuff. Look, it's a, it's a cult. You can't tell? They're all wearing white. They have flowers. They shave their head. There's a ponytail coming out the top. It's not natural. They're dancing at airports. Your fault. Dumb. I don't have time for you. This is just dumb. You got to use your brain. Well, if you're lost, you're lost. And it may be because they were naive, like that sheep that wandered off. But the penalty for not coming to Christ and being reconciled is eternal separation from him. And I think someday when we realize what we could have done, we're going to regret going, but they were foolish. But they were rebellious. But they just complained and kept talking about their abuse of past and they wouldn't move on. They're all lost. They're all lost. And our Heavenly Father feels compassion for all three of them all the time. That's the difference. Our God doesn't say to the foolish, you imbecile. Because if he did, we'd be lost. He doesn't say, are you idiot? That's the third time. And our God doesn't say to the abused, suck it up. Everyone has hard knocks in life. You want to know about hard knocks? Read again about my son, how you treated him. He, he doesn't do that. Or to the rebellious, you're only getting what you had coming to you. We do that, he doesn't do that. Instead, he runs to meet all three equally the moment that they turn back to him. That's the kind of heavenly father that we have. That's the kind of heavenly father we need to tell the lost about no matter what category they fall into because they need him. And the son of man came to seek and to save all those kind of lost people. That's one of my favorite verses. Just this past year has become one of my favorite verses as, we, as the Lord gave to me the vision for this church, rescue, raise, and release. Rescue has just come to life from Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at that one word in that verse, seek. Question, does anybody, any one of you make a habit of, of seeking things that are right there in front of you, phrase, or you're holding in your hand? Anybody, anybody do that just for fun? No, because it's kind of dumb, right? I mean, any of you... Would any of you walk around and going, where's my Bible? Where's my Bible? I need my Bible. The one I write in, the physical one. It's a black leather one with, where is it? That's dumb, and it's right in your hand. 
We don't do it. You don't seek what's found, right? I can think of only one circumstance, and I'm ashamed to admit it. I do it every, about three times a year. I will look for my glasses when I'm wearing them. Is there anybody with me? Please tell me there's somebody. Okay, thank you. Where are my glasses? I've literally gone to Michelle this close and gone, would you just help me find my glasses? And she's cracking up. Sure, I'll help you. They're right there on your face. But typically, right, we don't go looking for something. I have also looked for my keys while they're jingling in my hand. I, I, I don't know what that is. Maybe I'm worse than the foolish sheep, but I do that. Typically, though, we don't do that. We don't seek something that's found. It's not necessary. People either seek what's lost or what they think is lost, period. That's all I can come up with on that one. You seek what's lost. And if so-called Christians hinder the rescue mission of those lost, there's not sort of an in-between waiting pen where people go, well, those are the Christians that are a little off mission. They're taking a break right now. No, if you hinder the rescue mission or are not about the rescue mission in your life to some degree or another, doesn't mean you have to be Billy Graham, but to some degree or another... You're working for the devil. Whoa, that's pretty, that's pretty abusive for you to say, Pastor. That's kind of extreme. Well, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And he said, because you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. It doesn't seem to be this middle ground. I'm just telling you, he doesn't have a wait and see. He doesn't have a, I'm not for God, I'm not against God. He doesn't have that category. We, we make that category. It doesn't exist for him. So you hinder that, you're working for the devil. Anytime we thwart the reaching of the lost, anytime we don't emphasize it as a church, anytime we don't go all out when we know they'll be here in droves like Easter, we're sinning, we're working for the wrong side. Anytime we don't meet them warmly and show them grace, anytime they don't come into a church, any church, and I'm not picking on impact, I'm saying any church, anytime they come in and we go, yeah, I'm talking about fantasy football right now, um, somebody will deal with them. Anytime we don't greet them like that, we're not on the right side. Anytime we judge them, maybe they come in, but they've got purple hair. Listen, um, Johnny, come here. I don't know if your mom or dad didn't tell you, but you weren't born with purple hair. So why don't you run back home and die that before you come to our church again? Freak. No, we, we, we judge them. We look at them and go, there's something wrong with them. Or maybe they have too many piercings. Or maybe they have too many tattoos. Or maybe they don't have enough tattoos. And we judge them. And, and we say, they don't belong here. Or they're not like us. And in that way, we treat them as the elder brother. We treat them. And we're working for the enemy. Make no mistake about it. That elder brother was in the father's house working for the wrong side. He's working for the wrong side in church, in the Father's house. Can't get much worse. Now contrast this with Jesus, the other son in the story, who cares for all the lost, the religious, the rebellious, and the victimized, all of them. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, all the lost of every kind. Not just the ones who couldn't help it. Not just the victims not just the dim-witted and the foolish or even the rebellious, but all who are lost. He came. He loves them all. Jesus is, he's the perfect son. He's the perfect son. So there's one striking difference between this last story and the first two. And I'm, I'm going to wrap up with this gang. In the first two, please get this. I, I didn't notice this till this week. I have read this story probably more than a hundred times in my life. See, in the first two, Jesus puts 
And, and, and he, you got to understand, he told these stories, boom, boom, boom. He just told them one after the other, and they're with him, and he keeps building, and he gets his last one. And so he tells the story about the sheep, and of course, the sheep wandered off, and so much does the shepherd care for the sheep that he leaves the 99 and goes seeking and searching for the one. So much does the lady care about those 10 valuable coins that she puts the nine in a section in a cup or whatever, and she just tears the whole house apart looking for the one. And then you get to this last parable, and it's really interesting and I don't think the, the people listening to Jesus would have missed this for a second. And the sun goes off and nobody goes looking for him. Nobody goes after him. And people are probably going, where's the part where somebody go, goes after him? I mean, the reader was catching on. They're sharp after the first stories. They, they know how it works. However, Jesus throws them with this, this curveball. And though we all fully expect someone to go out and search for the lost son, nobody does. And I believe Jesus wants that glaring fact to just kind of sit there for a while. Yeah, nobody went. And he started living and he had friends for a while and he's getting further away from the father. Now things are really tough. Still nobody went. Nobody chased after him. He's out there somewhere. And they're kind of waiting. You messed the story up, Jesus. This isn't right. Jesus wanted it to sit there as he kept going deeper into the story for a reason. And and hopefully, if it hasn't worked before for you, it's working now. It's so that you will ask the question. And here it is. And you might want to write this down. And you might want to read this parable again with this question in your mind. Who is it that should have gone out looking for the lost son? And don't answer real quick because you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. And I guarantee you, after they started coming towards the end of the story, about the middle of it, everybody sitting there listening to Jesus knows exactly who should have gone out. Even though in our culture, we have no idea. Even though in our culture, most of you are sitting there right now going, well, it's his father. I mean, I'm not that dense, Pastor Rob. Of course, his father should have gone. Shouldn't have waited for him. He should have gone out. Shouldn't have let him go in the first place, actually. No, you're wrong. If you want to know who should have gone looking for that lost son turned to Genesis chapter 4. And I didn't have this planned and we don't have the verses on the screen. So turn to Genesis chapter 4. First book in the Bible. And I want you to look at verse 9. I'm going to begin reading there. Here's what's happened. I'll set the stage. Cain and Abel, the first two sons. Cain is older. Abel's younger. Got the older brother. Got the younger brother. And... Abel is pleasing to God. And Cain is self-righteous. He's tipping God with his, with his sacrifice of the fruit and the things that he brought. And he wants God to give him a good life, but he doesn't really want a relationship with God. Abel's different. He wants a relationship. And his sacrifice is pleasing to God. And Cain's is not. And that makes Cain angry at Abel for some weird reason. It's not Abel's fault. It's actually your fault, Cain, but he's angry at Abel. Where are we going to see that again thousands of years later? In this story that I am absolutely positive at this point that Jesus had in mind as he was telling this parable. So let's go with verse 9. So Cain kills Abel. Even the biggest atheist in the United States knows this story. Then the Lord came to Cain and he said to Cain, where is Abel? your brother. And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Five words. Am I my brother's keeper? We all know that saying. We've all heard that. 
And the answer is probably he was being sarcastic because the answer he would expect, go, no, that's not my job. I want you to remember that. Let's keep reading. And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, this injustice. And now you are cursed. Here comes the punishment. I already know what you've done. You're not coming clean. It doesn't matter. I know. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work that ground, it'll no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive. You're going to wander the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can even bear. My punishment is greater than I can even bear. You know what I believe Jesus is saying to Cain? I make no mistake about Cain, rather, to the, to the audience there. And here's what God said back then. It's not recorded in the scripture, but here's the implication. You know it because he cursed him. Jesus knew the Bible thoroughly, and he knew that at the very beginning it tells that other story. It's what he had in mind. And in that story, God clearly is saying to the elder brother, oh, you, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are. You should have loved him. You should have cared for him. If he wanders, you should go after him. Who should have gone after the younger brother when he wandered off? The older brother. And everybody listening knew it. They were stunned. Why, wait, wait, wait. Where, why is that guy sitting there? The father's not going after him because he knows what he's doing. But the older brother, he should show him love. He should chase him down. He should do something. Except he doesn't care. He has no frame of reference. He has no understanding for the lost because he himself is lost. Gang, you are your brother's keeper. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you are the keeper of the lost. If you're a Christ follower here today, you have been charged with the rescue mission and you will be held responsible for the rescue mission when you stand before your Savior one day. Who did you rescue, Rob? Who did you give the gospel to? How did you stir up that church? Did they invite the lost? Did they bring them? No? Why not? I gave you that mission. I passed you that baton. Did you drop it? Did you leave it on the track? You are your brother's keeper. And friends, so are we. So are we. And one of the greatest times of the year to care enough about him. I mean, you don't, if, you, if you're sitting there right now and going, but I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know how to do this. You're coming to a point in the year where eight out of ten people will come just because you invited them. You are coming to a place on the calendar where 80% of the people you invite are going to come because it's Easter and they're going anyway. We should fill this place. We should have to move that curtain and fill this place. And in impact, because one of the gifts that the Lord's given me, I don't have all the gifts, but one I definitely have is evangelism. And the gospel will go out and people will understand what it means to be beautifully broken and people will come to know the Lord on Easter Sunday. And how many depends on you and I and what we do to invite them. Today I want to do something a little bit different. Usually I stand at the door there and I'd love to chat with you guys and greet you, but I'm going to stand down here uh, as the band's playing. And if there's anybody here who says, I... I I can't even do this rescue mission. As he talks about it, I can't even relate to the older brother. Or the I'm, I'm lost. I, I'm all of that. I've been a rebel. I've been foolish. I've been abused. I've made excuses. But I don't know this father. I definitely want to take the opportunity to tell you about Jesus and what he did for you. The perfect son. 
So I'll be waiting right down there to share Christ with you and how you can come home and how you can be adopted into the loving arms of a waiting father. Let's pray and then we're going to get back to God. Father, thank you so much for this story. Greatest story probably told. Father, most well-remembered parable, Lord. And, and God, one that we can read over and over again and it still means more to us and we still find an aspect of it that we missed before. Your word is eternal and, and we'll never plumb the depths of it if we live a thousand lifetimes. Thank you for these last couple of weeks being able to go over this precious story. Lord, I, I pray it gave us not only an understanding and not just a command of some interesting trivia, but that it transformed us. And Lord, that, it, that it, it made us ready and passionate on fire to go reach the lost. And that if we are lost, we'll do something about it. Because if you feel a stirring in your heart right now, people, that's the Holy Spirit trying to call you home. Keep fighting that and it'll go away. And that'll be the worst thing that ever happened. I'll be waiting down front if you need to talk.